This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host for Upstream and Perspective, Jessica Nelson. On today's podcast, Jerry Kepes joins me to discuss analysis recently completed on the MSGBC Basin. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Jessica, and thank you for having me. So the MSGBC, or, or Senegal Basin, off the coast of Senegal and Mauritania in Western Africa is one of the more exciting areas of frontier exploration in the world, uh, rivaled perhaps only by activity in the Eastern Mediterranean and Guyana. Um, I realize there's a relationship for exploration along the Atlantic margin. In fact, Keith King from your team was on the podcast last year and educated us a little bit on the Atlantic margin. Um, are there more potential geologic similarities to Guyana and Senegal that lead to the current fascination with these basins? Absolutely. And thanks for asking me that, because um, this is really some of the most interesting developments that have led to and are part of this whole Atlantic margin play area, which extends as far north as uh, Norway and, and all the way down to the, the, the southern areas offshore in the deep water of Argentina on the west side of the Atlantic and then South Africa on, on the east side. So it's, it's a very exciting business. And and that concept is something we call conjugate uh, margin pair basins, which is because when you do plate reconstruction, parts of South America and North America fit right into Africa and Europe before the plate split. Um, basically, you had very similar bases being developed they were paired on both sides of the Atlantic. So the Guyana Basin, offshore Guyana and Suriname, where ExxonMobil and others have made such uh, extraordinary discoveries, they are analogous or rather pair basins with the MSGBC Basin on the other side, uh, which is what we're talking about today. So it's a very important concept, which has led explorationists to think about what was found on one side of the Atlantic and look for basically the same geology on the other side of the Atlantic in, in these paired basins. Uh, significant because it gives ideas about how to reinterpret uh, play concepts, as has been the case. And really, that's a concept that's been applied, been applied up and down the Atlantic margin play. So my answer to there is yes. That is a very good reason to see those two things together and think about how what you see on one side shows up on the other. And how about from a competitive standpoint? I know despite the enthusiasm surrounding Guyana's success, the play seems to be the exclusive domain of Exxon and its partner Hess. The MSGBC, on the other hand, has garnered interest from several large firms, including BP, Total, Exxon, and Petronas. Is the potential opportunity big enough to be a viable business for four companies of that size? Good question. Let me start with what happened in the Guyana Basin. First of all, what we've seen so far is it's the Guyana Basin portion offshore Guyana that's been successful so far. And it, it, there's multiple steps to the story, but, but by virtue of first entry, or early entry 
ExxonMobil and its partners end up with a substantial part of the offshore acreage in the Guyana Basin, offshore Guyana, where that success has been. Now, in the eastern part of the Guyana Basin, offshore Suriname, there are a number of other players. We, we haven't had success yet, and it's obviously a more complex set of plays there. But that, that's, um, but there was always the potential that if success extended to the east there in the Guyana Basin, that, that we would have more companies involved. And I will say also that in board of the ExxonMobil acreage, where all the success is, and by that closer to shore, we now have a couple of other companies starting to, to drill wells. Repsol will be drilling there. There, there are a couple of others. Um, so we, we may see that that near monopoly that ExxonMobil has, if you will, um, actually begin to um, to break open a little bit. Now, coming over to the other side. So as it happens in the MSGBC Basin, the, the company that really actually got the plays going there was really Cosmos on the one hand, uh, with respect to the big gas plays there that were discovered. And on the other hand, uh, Cairn, which has been involved with the oil discoveries that were made. So the, so the starting point was already different. And now, once that early success happened, we had BP coming in and doing a big alliance with Cosmos, um, to develop that gas and do more. We've had Woodside join Cairn Energy as, as a later farmer. Total has come in. So at the end of the day, actually, the MSGBC basin is bigger than the Ghana basin. So it has more acreage potential. And by virtue of when it started to move, we've had a number of players come in, not early entry per se, but let's call it fast follower. So the mix is already quite different. So we already have a situation where we're, we're unlikely to have that almost near monopoly on acreage that, that ExxonMobil has in, in the kind of basin. Um, it's all perfectly legally achieved. Um, monopoly doesn't mean illegal here, but, but we're already seeing a very different situation on the MSGBC basin side. Okay. Now, you and your team recently published some analysis of the GAM-1 Newfield Wildcat being drilled now in the MSGBC. Um, and this is the second well in two years in which Petronas has participated. And I, I think the last one came up dry last year. So do you see partners most interested in oil discovery here, gas discovery here? How do you see that? And, and, and frankly, that's why this particular well is so important. So, um, yeah, this is a total operated well. It, it's more or less on trend with the oil discoveries that were made by Karen and now Woodside, as I mentioned uh, just previously. Um, it's a little bit deeper water. Um, and it's really important because it's going to test the oil play. Um, and so it, it is definitely targeting oil. And it's also going to help us understand the source rocks that we have in the region. We have one part of the basin that's clearly gas prone and another part which is now a bit more localized which is clearly oil prone so what we don't know yet is is for the basin overall is this an area with a more complicated source rock story so therefore we have different pockets of gas prone versus oil prone areas or it just actually there's one area that is really going to be gas prone and it's, it'll tend to be more oily which, which we think is quite possible so this well right now 
that's drilling by Total that Petronas farmed into is definitely targeting oil. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is thinking about Petronas, and we, we've looked at them very closely because they've really become much more active as an operator and a non-operator in, in the whole Atlantic margin play or, or major parts of it. Um, they're over on the west side of Atlantic as well. So um, that first well that they participated in late last year, uh, just to the south of the, the oil field discoveries and, and south of the well that's being drilled right now, was was a big issue for them. And I think, and unfortunately, for industry and themselves, it came up dry. So this next well, I think, is pretty important as well uh, for them, um, which doesn't mean if it is dry that they would drop out. But it, if if oil was discovered in commercial volumes, I mean, obviously, Total would be quite pleased with that. But it would be very useful for Petronas because it would be a sign that this um, step out, if you will, and really it's been a major commitment in Atlantic margin play, uh, will start showing success early uh, here on this side. So it's, it's important for our several different companies. I'll say one more thing. Later this year, the government of Senegal is going to be running a bid round. So there's lots of acreage that will come up, kind of the remaining acreage available in and around these areas of success and, and also potential dry holes. So the results of this well that's being drilled right now is going to inform others who are interested in the play, and it could have a real impact, positive or negative, on the the upcoming Senegal bid round for more acreage. So it, it really could kickstart even more interest and activity by other players as well. Mm, yeah, interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, and have you maybe back on the podcast to talk about what that looks like. Um, I would be delighted. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about a gas discovery. How might that impact Africa, if at all, given giant gas discoveries off Egypt, Mozambique, and earlier this year, uh, South Africa? Right. Well, um, good question there, too. So what happens if it's gas? Well, let's just set the context here, and, and you've already started that with your question. Um, earlier this year in January, drilled by Total, which is also part of Atlantic Margin Play, they they build a what appears to be a large, largish wet gas discovery in the um, southern Otaniqua Basin offshore South Africa. Now, um, and we'll see what happens next. I think overall they're still looking for an oil play there, but South Africa is one of the few countries in the region that has or is capable of having a a sizable, viable domestic gas market. So in the case of the total discoveries offshore South Africa uh, and others that might follow, um, actually, you've got a good shot at making a very uh, attractive economic investment there because there is a domestic gas market available or potential for that. It could be piped onshore. There is ability to pay. There, there's a there's a substantial economy there, um, and, and therefore that would really impact just South Africa. The the large gas discoveries offshore Mozambique, which is of course East Africa and, and not part of the Atlantic margin play at all, of course, is really very export oriented. There are some domestic market provisions, but th- that's really going to have to compete largely in Asia Pacific. LNG market in the years to come. So I, I don't see that as impacting the rest of Africa. 
Um, and when we come to the Eastern Med, um, uh, again, discoveries there, either within Egyptian water or near the boundary of that marine border, have the potential to be brought into the Egyptian market. And again, that that's the one large gas market there is in all of Africa. So there are uh, there is the ability to pay. Um, uh, offshore gas projects are or certainly can be economic. There are a couple of LNG export projects here that are that are in the process of coming back up and running again. So, so you have a, a a viable means to commercialize gas. Coming back to the MSCBC basin, if if this next well discovers gas, it, it suggests that the, the BP Cosmos gas discoveries, which are already quite large and will be exported uh, by design via an LNG project, that, that there's more of that. Um, now, that, that poses somewhat additional, additional challenges for commercialization. You're, you're, you're trying to build LNG projects um, and putting LNG supplies out into what is going to be a very competitive market in the years to come, in large part because LNG coming out of the U.S. based on shale gas is so competitive. So um, if it is another gas discovery, it probably makes commercialization more difficult. We might see domestic market provisions in Senegal for gas, but there's no real big gas market there. Um, and so that really wouldn't be enough to develop or cause to develop a very large gas project. So uh, more gas means more difficult commercialization um, into more competitive environment and wouldn't kill enthusiasm to play at all. It just went well, and it's a big basin. But it, it does um, start to add data on the issue of, okay, is this, is this really an oil-prone basin, which would probably get a lot more interest, or is this a gas-prone basin with, with smaller areas of localized oil, uh, which would probably get somewhat less interest. So it's really quite important, important as a signpost for or a leading indicator for, for what happens next. Okay. And it sounds like you started to talk a little bit about the competition there. So so these discoveries should not necessarily be viewing one another as competition. Um, yeah, I would say that the competition in this case with the gas comes when there's enough gas to be an LNG project because then you're competing with the LNG marketplace. And and therefore, it's not at all clear that LNG coming out of Egypt, per se, competes directly with LNG coming out of offshore Mauritania, uh, per se, or, or Senegal, as the case may be here. Um, except if, if they, from a Project Q perspective, if they were to be developed and coming on stream at the same time, uh, in advance of that, they might be competing for this market or that market. But it's also true that these days, um, th th there's less 20-year-long uh, take-or-pay agreements for LNG. Um, th there's a bigger spot market. There's other ways to finance LNG, uh, which means, um, in a way, LNG is more fungible. It could be sent in different directions and be part of larger company arbitrage and, and trading portfolio. So it, it's more complex. Um, it, it does mean that sometimes if you wanted to go via spot cargoes, for example, you're, you're more likely to place them, I suppose. But it, it also means it could be harder to finance because what, what countries want and what 
companies wanted, they could, is they would still prefer to get a 20-year take-or-pay agreement based or linked to oil prices. So it becomes oil-like in terms of its financial performance over the years. So um, your question about direct competition head-to-head, it's less about competing with each other for Africa and more about competing into an LNG market globally that is going to be, is, and will be very competitive and very much cost-based. Okay. Um, and let's close up here with a, a question. I know I know, unconventionals has been the hot topic, but with potential success here and continued success in the Eastern Med and Guyana, is there potential to revive enthusiasm in conventional exploration? Um, you know, I know <laughs> commodity prices over the last few years have, have made a lot of operators risk averse. So um, what do you think about, uh, about conventional exploration? Well, overall, so... Conventional exploration means we're generally talking about the offshore, not completely, but generally. And what has been the clear trend over the last 20 years is that the bigger discoveries have been taking place in the deep water and ultra deep water. And we're ultra deep water is 1,500 meters or plus. So the, that's been the overall trend. So then the question is, well, what happens with that? Well, what we have had is obviously post oil price fall in 2014. We've had four years of really flat conventional exploration activity. And it initially started because of budgets, but also perception of risk. But also we would argue, as we have, that there had been a consensus that within the industry that conventional exploration was a value-adding enterprise. Um, and where you would question this company or that company because of performance, you didn't question the overall idea. That consensus was completely shattered so that it was no longer that it's accepted that conventional exploration is what industry should be doing necessarily. That, that is really value-adding. Um, so that, that's gone away. So that sets the stage. And the other side of that coin is so many companies have shifted all or substantial parts of their operational business and focus to onshore North America shales or other short cycle investment opportunities in EMP, which means um, in shale, of course, you drill away well tomorrow, you could be producing cash flow in six weeks. In a lot of long-term conventional exploration projects, you make a big discovery. If it's remote, you could be eight, 10, 12, plus years out, very different business proposition. And so we now have a, a world that is much more favored or, or finds favor with these short cycle opportunities like shale. And therefore a lot of the operational capacity is focused on that. So the idea that conventional exploration would, would go back to where it was five years ago, that's just not gonna happen. Um, again, because large parts of the industry has said we're going to do this other type of investment operationally and financially and from a strategic point of view. And even if we do some conventional exploration, it's not going to have the same importance in our portfolio as it did before. Having said that, we have had more interest in conventional exploration from some. Um, we are not rebounding. We are not going back to four or five years ago. But we, we have had some increases as more interest. Costs are a lot lower. 
uh, seismic data to acquire and process is a lot cheaper. That changes the risk proposition a little bit. Um, we, we might have a, a narrower set of companies participating in conventional exploration. Uh, I think that's probably true. Um, so it can be quite competitive in, in, in a couple of places. So uh, I guess my answer to your question is, um, it, it, it's not black or white, I suppose. Um, so it, it's, not, it's not bouncing back. It's not crushed. Um, and, and we have had some increase of activity in result from what we saw in the previous four years. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up our conversation. I know we touched on a lot of topics today, and uh, I think your your expertise really helped tie together how you know some of the oil and gas markets are uh, making decisions and and how intertwined a lot of their um, a lot of these industries are. Tell me if you could sit down for a beer or soda, coffee with any one person, historical figure or current person, oh. who might that mm-hmm. be? Well, the, the the people that I like. Uh, or would like to talk to about um, at least the business of hand, um, as opposed to a broader business, is, is the, the 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 heads of exploration for these companies who are really thinking about, um, shall we say, what what to do next, right? If 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 this basin works or doesn't work, um, the, the whole idea of the business of exploration and, and the strategies around it is has been a fascination for me, not just professionally, but um, but personally. And I've been, I started off as an exploration geologist myself and um, uh, and have been doing that for 35 years. So that, that remains actually, even in a lighthearted way, quite interesting to me. Outside the industry, the people that I would like to talk to today, and they're well past, um, unfortunately, is um, I, I used to do work out in the Western United States and field work for geology, and and uh, I would go around and I would run across the, the, the previous efforts by uh, people of 150, 200 years ago in terms of when they were looking for new deposits of, for precious metals and things like that. And today we have all these theories, we have the science, we have data and remote sensing, all these, all these remarkable, wonderful tools. Um, and those people, they had, they didn't have any of that. They had a power of observation. They were close to the ground, so to speak, but they had a real ground sense or ground truth of, of what could happen. So when, as I went about my more modern way, shall we say, doing field mapping, it always amazed me. I would come across where I could see that someone had dug a pit, et cetera, 150 years ago. And I always marveled at how much they knew and how much they could figure out just by the sheer power of focus and, and the ability to think. And that was always an inspiration to me. So those are the kind of people I'd like to talk to today, whether it was beer or wine or, or lemonade. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that question. Jessica. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, I'd never thought about that, but you're right. Those people in the gold rush, you know, the, the things that they did with with very little tools and <laughs> and some manual work, right? Oh yeah, it's crazy. But, but even in the oil industry, if you go back, um, there's a place outside of Beaumont, Texas. We're in Beaumont, Texas, we were some of the biggest wells in Texas, really in the world, from the 1910s and 1920s. Um, uh, took place. Even today, you can go around, and and what the, the the people figured out then is that all these wells on shore, they were often the 
best places to drill were around salt domes, okay? Because as the salt dome, or the salt, which was less dense and, and therefore more buoyant, so it actually it would pierce and, and go to the surface, and therefore it would create a circle, so to speak, right? So uh, around the circle, these early explorations knew how to drill by trial and error around the edges of that circle to catch oil trapped up against the overhangs of that salt. What it meant is as the salt dome gets close to the surface, the extra salinity in the soil would kill all the trees. So these old salt domes can be seen easily because they are, they are ringed by trees and they're bare in the middle. Ah. Um, and, and you can still see that today. And you can figure out, okay, well, now that I know the theory and, and I've seen these things seismically, but how did they figure that out 100 years ago now? Uh, again, a, a real sense of observation obvious experiment but 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 thought process here very impressive yeah for sure well jerry i think we could probably keep talking about, about that for quite a while but i, I bet we could <laughs> i bet we could i want to thank you again for joining me today um and we will definitely have to have you back to um, discuss some of those things jessica i would love it thank you for having me great and thank you to all of our listeners uh, i will talk to you on our next podcast I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.